Who wants to wait 362 days until you can go and touch your customer again? That's the that's the cycle time of a of a trade show event. You you don't need the the trade show to bring your people together for you to have access to your customer. You can have access to them all the time and all the places where they hang out on the internet. Hello again, and welcome to Marketing Revisited. My name is Liam Maroney. I am your host, and on this podcast, I talk to the smartest marketers I know, one topic at a time, to find out what's new, what's changed, and what you need to leave behind. And today, I spoke with Chris Walker, the CEO and founder of Refine Labs, the host of Demand Gen Live and the State of Demand Gen podcast, and easily the most prominent voice on LinkedIn when it comes to demand generation. It was a great episode. I hope you enjoy. Take a listen. Chris, welcome to the show. It is an absolute pleasure. How are you doing today? Liam, I am pumped to be here. And is this episode one? This is technically episode four, uh, only okay. for lack of your availability and not for lack of your importance, <laughs> I assure you. Well, I am, uh, I am looking forward to diving in. Um, and so let's dive right in then. We're going to revisit demand generation, and I've been a demand gen marketer for my entire career. And it feels like certainly in the last couple of years, just even the, the theory, the philosophy, the measurement process has fundamentally changed, not because it's evolved, but I think because we finally realized what we were doing wrong in the beginning. And so I'd love to start there. We, we talk a lot about what demand gen isn't. What is demand gen? I'd say that demand gen is creating an affinity or desire in your target buyers for your product category or the business problem that you solve, or most likely all three. And it's that affinity part that I'd love to dig into because a lot of what we suffer from, and I've certainly had this throughout my career, is the short-termism of demand gen. It is, I need things now, and very often when the team gets brought in, it's about delivering things in a very short time frame. Affinity is not something that happens in a time frame. So when you think about demand gen's role and marketing's role to the sales team, how much of the effort is in current quarter needs versus future quarter outcomes? It depends on your sales cycle length, but the, the short term is, um, is because it's not really demand gen, it's lead gen or pre-sales. You know what I mean? That's where, that's where the short termism is for marketing. A lot of marketing is basically just pre-sales and how it's executed right now, which is why you get the short-termism, you get the transactional nature of it, you get the direct response piece of it, um, because B2B companies historically have thought about things like sales and marketing's job is to deliver contacts for sales to call. Um, and so because of how that whole system has been built, that's what marketing has been mainly responsible for, which has generated the you know, key metric of MQLs and all of the other behaviors that I I think were appropriate at the time when some of those things were published, but are definitely antiquated and outdated based on how buyers buy today. Yeah. And and when you think about that, so like there's a lot of terms of existing companies where they're trying to, you're trying to undo a lot of the damage that's been effectively done by that. If you're thinking blank slate and if demand gen is brought in today, I guess first question is when is it brought in? Because it feels like a lot of the times it's brought in too late in the game and that's what causes a lot of these problems where you're now addressing an over hiring you're addressing like an immediate gap like when is the time frame that demand gen should exist or at least be actively deployed mm, i think this is a varying question too but what i'll say is the thing 
a couple things. The thing not to do is to have 12 salespeople before you hire, bring in demand gen, which is a what a lot of series A and series B companies do, which just sets the infrastructure for this function to fail and become a, a lead gen machine, not a key business driver and revenue contributor. So that's one piece of it. The second thing that I'll say is that I believe that the company should have uh, established messaging that works in the market before considering bringing in demand gen. So I think the first hire, if you're really early stage company, should be focused on a marketing strategist, which could be a product marketer. It could just be a, a, a marketer. I, I, I don't like putting marketers in boxes, right? I'm a product marketer. I'm a demand gen marketer. I'm a field marketer. All I am is a marketer. Mm-hmm. I'm actually not even, I'm more of like a, it's interesting as I've started to evolve, it's really like a go-to-market person. And I'd love to see the evolution of, of that type of function continue to evolve um, because when you start to cross over between marketing sales and ops, you get some really cool stuff, some really cool, cool learnings, and you challenge a lot of the things that people have been doing today because you see a larger part of the system as opposed to just playing in your little part of the assembly line. That's an interesting one. I'd love to actually poke at that a little bit because I think I've always struggled as sort of like the defined demand gen person on a team. And a lot of times what gets put on my team gets colored by that lens. So like when you think about where social media gets placed, very often social media becomes a demand gen function and therefore it acts like a dem- like a lead gen tool. Do you think that there is, I mean, does demand gen like does does and it, like the role itself, like how rigid should it be? Like what what falls within the realm of and not realm of demand gen? Like are there channels that don't belong in there? It shouldn't be rigid at all. It should be flexible. In my view, you basically have two things. You have strategy and you have execution. And I think that companies would be very, it would serve them very well to think about just having, especially at, at earlier stages, you got product marketing and you got demand gen. And I really believe that's, that's pretty much all that you need. And so it's interesting to think about how, like, if you, if you were forced to put every function in your marketing team into one of those two buckets, how would you bucket them? Um, because like field subfunction of demand gen brand subfunction of demand gen. Um, so like website subfunction of product marketing. And so if you got forced to basically just split them into two, you'd end up with a much more simple flexible organizational structure where you don't box marketers in to saying, Oh, because you're in demand gen, you only run paid Google ads and you stunt creativity. You, you limit experimentation by putting people in little boxes like that. And so I'd, I'd love to see, um, I found that all the best marketing for, for me in my career works when I blend functions together, when I'm going out and I'm architecting a live event, field marketing in quotes for the people. So I'm architecting a live event. I'm bringing a video crew in there to film and record it. I'm inviting influential people to be the keynote speakers of this event. Now we got influencer marketing in there. We're going to do that whole event. We're going to record it. We're going to take that content. Then we're going to take the content out. We're going to publish the podcast. We're going to publish a video on our website. We're going to chop it up. We're going to run ads about the video content to other people. And then you look and you're like, wow, like I just spanned across the entire suite of marketing Hmm. by doing one activity. Um, And so I I believe that that's like people call it integrated marketing in the the way to bring it together. But like 
you shouldn't need to have to like bring it together. It's, from a strategic standpoint, I feel like you should know that piecing these together is the right way to do it. Yeah, I totally agree. I actually had an integrated marketing title at one point, and the entirety of it was to say work with one another. That was the like that was my entire message most of the time. Mm-hmm. When you talk about product marketing and demand gen, it's interesting that those are like the two defining groups that things fall under. How should demand gen work with product marketing? I think there's some interesting crossover here because I believe that demand gen folks should be running their own uh, market research streams as well. And they should be able to, so not just like here, product marketing, go do market research and then tell me what you learned. Like I think every marketer should be talking to customers should be. And when I say customers, it's people that pay you and people that could pay you in the future, but don't pay you right now, the market. And when you go out and talk to people and you're curious and you learn you, your execution becomes better from a demand gen standpoint. And so I feel like that is a missing piece for what people do. So it's not that just because product marketing is in their own little thing doesn't mean that you do, don't do market research or you don't do other parts of marketing. It's just when it comes to ultimate accountability for the website or the messaging or the sales deck, it's not going to be in your in your camp. But when it comes to how you bring that messaging to life inside of a paid social ad or how you bring that messaging to life and architect what our podcast is going to be or what our live event weekly live event series is going to be like having those types of insights are going to help you make better decisions about which people are going to be speaking, what topics are we going to be talking on, how are we going to distribute it the best for people to actually see it. And so I think that there's um, a, a function of overlap that because of the silos that have been created, they prevent the overlap that of letting marketers do all of the functions of marketing. Yeah. So it goes back to that flexibility again. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm fascinated that you refer to the website as product marketing ownership, which is interesting because it very often gets put into the demand gen camp because, oh, it generates the inbounds. It's the thing that feeds the sales team. Why not demand gen? Mm, I think that there are ways where demand gen can influence conversion rate optimization tests and things like that that matter. But from an overall accountability standpoint, it's basically like the how you bring your message to the market in your number one space, your website. Um, feels like a feels like a product marketing function to me. Yeah, I mean it makes sense because like if you again if you think about it purely through the lens of its job is to capture people through a form, then it ends up providing not enough information for them to make a decision because it's all about tease them, get them to convert. And if and if that's the goal, build a squeeze landing page on Optimizely or whatever you want to do, and you don't need to touch the website, which is what people do. But like um, the website needs to be much broader uh, than trying to squeeze someone into a form. Yeah. And you mentioned events, and I know you've had strong opinions about investment in events and and reallocation of that. Events seem to be kicking back into gear now. Again, there's a lot of them popping up. What is your current take on how people should be approaching that from an advantage and strategy? Like, where should we begin? If we're being asked right now, hey, events are coming, should we start redirecting budget back in there? My position on this has only gotten stronger over the past six years since I worked for a company that spent about 67% of their variable marketing budget to build trade show booths and associated trade show sponsorships, which left no money for digital over the top, no money for uh, actual content programs, no money for any other types of activities in, in demand gen or marketing. And what I did was I just went and I, I, out of the 13 trade show boosts that we built, I measured the direct results on net new acquisition from every single one. I was at them. I looked at the data. 
I generated the reports. And what we found is that there was only one out of the 13 that was ROI positive from a net new business standpoint. And so what we did is we compromised and they, the, there were certain ones that the executives were going to go to no matter what. I'm not going to fight those battles. It just doesn't matter to me. But we cut it from 13 to 3, which brought back a, more than a million dollars in variable budget that then we took to do a combination of podcasts, influencer marketing, micro events that created podcasts and influencer marketing, distribution on in at that time Facebook and Instagram ads which worked incredibly well targeting physicians. So the reallocation of those funds to support more than just building a structure that gets knocked down after 3 days to move it into a place where you can have a much more customer focused execution and can connect it with a digital thing that can keep going. The second piece is like, who wants to wait 362 days until you can go and touch your customer again? That's the, that's the cycle time of a, of a trade show event. You can, you, you don't need the, the trade show to bring your people together for you to have access to your customer. You can have access to them all the time and all the places where they hang out on the internet. And so I think it's just literally a outdated way of thinking that I need this conference to happen to bring my buyers together in order for me to access my buyer, which is totally not true. You can access them whenever you want in any of the platforms on the internet. So I think there's a mindset shift that needs to happen about when trade shows were built, when they started, I don't know even know when the time frame was, but let's just look back into the 2000 eras, like great buy, no, no digital, nothing on the internet, like not enough on, especially in B2B so that when all the buyers came together, they didn't have the internet to go and research products. They weren't connected with their peers to know what they were doing. They didn't have digital education, so they needed to go and look at every single one of the sessions. They would go and carefully peruse the booth to figure out what are the new products from each different company, how because they didn't have any other way to discover them. And all of those things that create made a trade show good 15 years ago no longer exist. And so I feel like companies should just, and it's, it feels simple to me to challenge things like this, but I have just found that people don't think this way often. They don't challenge why they continue to do certain things or why they started to do them in the first place. And if you start to think about why you started to do things in the first place from a marketing standpoint, and then look at, okay, so how do we end up here? What's changed since we started doing this thing? Why do you, why, what's changed with our buyer? Why, okay, what can we infer from that about why it isn't working anymore? Those are some of the things that I think people should start to think about. I think that makes sense. And I, you remind me of a thing I this very similar thing happened to me years ago at a different company where I showed money for an event that we were being asked to sponsor. And I said, here's the historical information. This has not worked for us. This has been an enormous investment with virtually no return. And I made the recommendation to not spend the money. And the pushback I got at the time from the CEO was, this is our definitive trade show of the year. If we're not there, everyone's going to notice. Going to go go to our customers' booth, and they're going to think we went out of business, exactly. and they're yeah, gonna, it literally we're going to yeah. lose all our customers. And it's like, it's not how it works. So, where do you bring information to to pitch that to say, like they're everywhere but here? Because while your competitors do all the same dumb shit that you're doing right now, and spend all their money investing in trade show booths that that your buyers come to once a year and oftentimes don't even come to your booth, never see your logo, never touch you at that event, you get maybe 50 to 100 badge scans and some side conversations with current accounts that you would have had anyway, regardless of the booth expense. And you take all that money and you market to your customers every single day on the internet. It's not complicated. <laughs> um, and so 
Is there a hybrid where you do both? Sure, but especially at growth stage companies, they're just way over invested in events, which prevents them from scaling the things that actually work today. Yeah, yeah. So kind of in that vein, like I said, a lot of this, there's, there's a lot of sort of undoing damage. That's kind of the old school way of thinking about demand gen. Like, you know, when you're in a position where there is legacy sales teams, like there is that sort of historical overhiring, can you reverse those mindsets? Like, I mean, how at, at what point do you cut bait and run and go, this is beyond saving versus there's an amount of re-education that should be expected? I think the thing that people really need to understand is that shifting your marketing strategy in this way is actually an entire shift in go-to-market. And that's the thing that people miss. So like, if you want to shift from getting thousands of MQLs that your sales team cold calls when they don't want to talk to you and don't want to buy, and you want to shift to completely changing how you think about it, you need every single commercial executive on board with this change because it is a different model. And so if the, everyone on the executive team is not on, aligned with this change, which is obvious, if you talk to your customers, look at your business data, there are, and as, as long as you're, the thing, the thing that I found is the challenge is that a lot of companies that are 20 million ARR take advice from companies that are 17, mil, 17 billion mm -hmm. in valuation or ARR publicly traded, right? They go and look at what's Salesforce doing, what's HubSpot doing, what's whatever, you know, Gainsight doing. And they go and see what big companies do. And big companies have are category leaders, mature categories that have tons of demand, tons of different resources. A majority of their growth happened more than five years ago, oftentimes more than a decade ago. And you're going to go and take the, their advice about how to grow your business today. And that's the thing that's, that's missing because the companies that run the ebook play and generate hundreds of thousands of, of contacts and take credit and act first touch attribution and all the other dumb shit are the companies that don't need the demand anyway because the category's been built and from dark social, they're going to get all the demand. So, and then, but the 20 million ARR company that doesn't have a mature category, doesn't have a, uh, a established brand, doesn't have a ton of inbound demand flow. You go and run that play and see what happens. Doesn't work, doesn't work at that level. So I think that's some things that people need to think about changing is where are you getting your advice from and why, right? Like, Anecdotal insight from billion dollar companies is one thing, like getting your framework from Gartner or McKinsey or someone like that, which is entirely built to manage companies like Medtronic and massive enterprise organizations, not a growth stage $20 million SaaS company. It's just, we need to think about where is the advice coming from and is it relevant to me? Yeah, a hundred percent. And if you're in one of these positions and let's say you do sell this in effectively, everyone's on board. Is it a cold turkey thing? Like, do you switch off the MQL train or do you think there's a weaning off process? Like, how do you implement it once you've sold it? I mean, the business data should tell you what to shut off. So uh, when people run direct response, lead gen, all these things, everything's perfectly tracked. So you can go in and look out of the 15,000 content syndication leads that we got in the past six months, how many got to qualified opportunities? What websites do they come from? How did that work with all of our LinkedIn at leads, which ads did they come from, which contacts were they, what percentage of them converted? And you can make black and white decisions about, is this, is this creating enough pipeline to justify, keep doing it? Is this an effective way to use our sales team's time, which is the massive hidden cost that people don't understand. Sales leaders love the stuff that I'm talking about now, now that they understand it, because all marketing does right now in this lead gen model is waste your fucking sales team's time. 
<laughs> and instead yeah. of following up with marketing leads that never close, just just to facilitate something for your SDRs to do, if you redirected that and went to strategic outbound with all that money and resources and wasted time, you would get way better results from your SDRs, way better productivity from your sales team, and your marketing team could do something that actually works. And so it's been very interesting over time to see the sales leader being the champion of our execution, not necessarily the CMO. And when they're both to aligned and together, it creates, it just, it, it makes things work really well. And so I don't, um, the, the, the cold turkey thing, the how you switch off should be driven by results. You don't shut off things that are working, but if things are in the data and it's very clear in the data whether or not it is, then shut off the things that aren't working. Yeah, and speaking of the things that are working, I think the uh, the the open field contact us request thing is, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think I've listened to you go through more examples of people coming in and what the attribution shows. Like It's funny how a lot of the what is working is built on the internal systems, not on actually what people are explicitly telling you. Um, it's all built on what other things are, tell you. It's been funny um, to watch attribution software vendors push back on self-reported attribution when it's 100% supplementary. I'm not saying don't use attribution software. I'm saying, yo, you got attribution software over here that's giving you a small amount of things that's actually happening. If you add this piece, you get way deeper details. And the attribution vendors, instead of being like, hey, this is smart, maybe we should add this to our product, they push back on it and see it as competitive because they don't want what's best for you as a buyer or a user. They want what's best for them. It's super simple. And that's with every vendor, you're going to get the same thing. The difference in my position that people need to understand is that the only thing that I care about is driving better results for you. We don't have tech vendor partnerships. We don't care about selling you a specific tool. I don't care about which ABM platform you use. I don't care. What I care about is do you have a framework that drives better marketing results? And because we're not in this position, which every other place that you get your advice from, Gartner, consulting firms, agencies with, with tech vendor partners, anywhere else, you're getting biased information based on the vendor's information that you get. You're getting strategy information from there. And when you actually think about that, like we've made a strategic choice not to do that for that exact reason is that we can be 100% objective when we do it. And so I feel like people, um, the that example of how the attribution was handled is a clear-cut real-life example about when vendors don't have your best interest in mind. And I'd love to switch gears to talk kind of about like setting expectations. You wrote a really good post very recently, and it was about sort of like this rush to scale versus innovation in demand gen. And I feel like a lot of the times Dimension is brought in with the explicit like belief that this is once we get it in motion, we're going to turn it on and it will X 100 immediately. Like, does that feel like a wrong expectation to be setting? Uh, yeah. Like the thing that's so funny, people literally think that this is like magic fairy dust where one demand gen marketer comes in, just like sprinkles some stuff on it. And all of a sudden it scales all the way up to like 500K in spend, drives billions of dollars of pipeline in the company IPOs. This shit is harder than scaling your sales team. That's the easiest way to put it. Like it takes you years to scale up a sales team and have that run effectively. Like why wouldn't you apply the same thing to demand gen? It's the exact same thing. And so the idea that 
as you don't just push buttons and magically stuff happens. There are operational elements, there's testing, there's understanding channels, there's maintaining and looking at the right metrics, there's making decisions, there's understanding buyers. Like this is a long game. And I think that when reframed of it takes the exact same amount of effort, if not more, because it's actually, in my belief, harder to drive to do, given that I, most B2B companies know how to sell stuff know how to run sales. Most B2B companies do not know how to execute proper demand generation and how it works today with buyers, which makes it a skill that a lot of people need. Um, but if you if you think this is going to be easy, then I, I challenge you to rethink and, and frame it up against how much effort it takes to get your sales team to 100 people. And on that note, like if you're in that early phase where you're now putting in the groundwork, you're creating the content, you're trying to build that authority in the marketplace. When you're talking internally, like what do those early quarters look like from a measurement point of view? Like what should you be going to a leadership update saying, this is signs that this is working until we see the really tangible stuff coming in? So I've encouraged marketers to shift the bar of what they're optimizing for away from MQLs or SQLs or pipeline or MQAs or anything else to what we call hero pipeline, high intent revenue opportunity pipeline. The core definition of it is that it needs to be moved into a stage that your sales team wins at greater than 25%. And when you force marketing to optimize for that, that's directly aligned with what your sales team needs in order to hit their targets. What happens is that all the garbage that marketing usually does to hit their vanity metrics that are earlier funnel, even pipeline, it forces them to look and say, oh, we're actually missing the goal completely because all the stuff we're doing just pumps up the vanity metrics that we've created to make us feel good. And so shifting the bar on the goal is the number one thing. When you shift the bar as an organization, you'll see that your 10,000 leads are only generating 500K in pipeline or whatever it is. You need this realization to say what we're doing in marketing is not helping our sales team win or not helping our sales team win enough or not working enough with the money that we're investing in it in order to drive results. Shift the bar and then you can look and say, okay, so out of the 500K pipeline that's getting this far that our sales team actually wants to talk to where we actually win a good percentage of it, where are these people coming from? And you'll look and it's none of the lead gen programs that you're running people that come through your website and say, Hey, I'd love to buy this stuff now because they discovered you somehow in dark social, whether that's referrals from peers, or if you have content or information to control it. And they have decided that they prioritized your business problem that you solve. And they want to talk to you about whether or not you can help them solve it. And so if you ch transition the goal of marketing to that, then you should be looking to grow that number every single quarter ideally greater than 25% per quarter, which would drive more than 100% year over year growth. So if you're, as long as you're not a seed company or a series A company with no pipeline, if you're an established business, growing that thing at a, at a clip of greater than 100% year over year growth is most likely gonna, gonna work for you. I've, most series C and series D companies I'm talking about are projecting way less than 100% year over year growth. And so that's how you know whether it's working. And you should be able to impact that number immediately within the first 90 days. Because once you shift the bar and you say, okay, we're going to strip out these thousand MQLs a week that never become pipeline. And we get our sales team focused on something different that every person that we give to our sales team is actually going to be good. We're going to convert them. Our sales team is going to be more focused on them. It's going to, we can prioritize them better that just the amount of people that you have already should convert better. 
Then you can focus on what do you, what am I going to do on our website to get more people? Then you can focus on how many people that are searching for our brand or our top level category or things like that in Google to actually convert. And then I can focus on how am I going to create demand to drive people all the way through that efficient system. And so we're like the, the increases here should be, you're going forward every single quarter. That's the, that's the framework. I love that. And the last place I'd love to talk into is just the brand aspect of it. I was going to ask, and then you explicitly said it, that brand is under demand, Jen. It feels like the definition of demand and brand, like brand especially in B2B, is is probably misunderstood. Like I think we think of it through a B2C lens and it's sort of like, you know, brand recognition, name recognition, all the share of voice. Mm-hmm. Like what what is brand from a B2B context? Yeah, and and to clarify, I don't see a brand under demand or vice versa. I see them as the same thing. Um, and so it's a, it's a really interesting thing when you can look at it because what's the difference between running a podcast episode into a LinkedIn piece of content and then taking that piece of content and running it on paid. When you shift the goal of marketing away from leads, then everything becomes the same. All we're trying to do is educate buyers, create demand and have people be more open or more interested in working with us. All right. So last question is, I want to just ask about brand. And we, we talk a lot about sort of like brand and demand. What is the role of brand in demand generation? And how should marketers think about how to measure it? And also just how much effort to put into brand building versus outcome? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've encouraged people to think about the idea that brand and demand are now the same thing. Because what's happened is that historically people have thought about demand as lead gen and people have thought about brand as all this fluffy stuff that's not accountable to results. Let's look at things like clicks or impressions or stuff like that. And neither of those things work. And so I feel like we should put them, we should scrutinize both of those things. If we're not in lead gen anymore and we, then we could put them together and the only difference is whether we're operating on paid channels or organic channels, but we have the same strategy metrics goals. It's just whether or not we're using paid to guarantee distribution of information or we're using organic, which is free, but we don't have control over the distribution. And so I would, I would challenge people to think about that in that way. And then you don't measure the, the differences between the effectiveness of demand or brand. You look at it as a business, as a function, is our go-to-market working? Is our pipeline growing every quarter? Is that pipeline converting to revenue better? Is that within our cost targets? How scalable is this? And you start to have different levels of conversations than what people are having right now, which is like, what is our cost per lead? How many impressions do we get in that display ad for that account? And it elevates it away from the channel because attributing anything to a single channel is just not smart anymore. Especially in a complex B2B buying journey, people are going to go through multiple journeys, most of which you'll never be able to track. People will go through channels and do activities. The things that are most impactful are things that you will never track. So you actually, if you do this and you use it, you assign credit to things that are most easily measured, not things that work the best. And so there's there's just a, a whole different way to think about it that combines the two together and makes the function accountable to results do you think there's any value at all in even like anecdotal things that might be an indicator of brand, like how often we're mentioned in an RFP or anything like that? I would much rather 
than do that would rather survey the market and look at points in time about who people think is the top player in the category. What do actually these people use? Which product do they use? If they don't use one, who do they think is the leader? And you can slice and dice it by any dimension that you want. And you can see who are the people that think of us? What do they think when they think of us? Has that changed over the past six or 12 months since we've been doing things? Where do they get information? How do they want to buy? When do they want to engage with our sales team? And just doing what what I call, that's quantitative market research, but I use qualitative market research to decide what things I'm going to research quantitatively and get more data behind it. And those insights, I think, are much more effective than how many times you're mentioned in an RFP. I'd rather not be mentioned in RFPs. Interesting. What's the rationale for that? Who the fuck wants to do an RFP? Yeah. The fact that they're doing an RFP means they think that you're a commodity. Mm. They think that there are other people that can do the same thing. Yeah. Differentiate yourself between these other four. If people, if you're an RFP with six other vendors, it means that you haven't done a good enough job showing people why you are the only option. I love that. That's such a fascinating way of looking at it. I completely agree. So I think the last place to just leave us is we talk a lot about what's wrong with demand gen. What actually gets you excited about demand gen? What are you looking forward to or seeing that makes you feel optimistic? Everything is moving in the direction as, uh, and moving in the direction of needing this as a function. So I can remember five years ago when the company didn't even know what demand gen was. I was the only person executing it. The company didn't value what I was doing. They had no understanding of the impact of the business. And you're basically just playing the fifth or sixth fiddle behind the sales team and even the SDR team. And boy, have the tables turned. Um, and now executives and companies that the same business problems existed in 2016. This is not a pandemic thing. The same business problems existed in 2016. Executives were just not aware of them and not accepting them as real problems. They would just continue to fight it with the same stuff, more sales training, more SDRs, more salespeople, stuff like that. They've realized that the more isn't working because they're swimming upstream against the way that buyers want to buy. And if you lean into it, all I do is I stop resisting what buyers are doing. And while everyone else tries to fight against what buyers are doing and they want to do it their way, I just do what buyers want to do. And it doesn't matter. And I just lean into that and let it go. And at the moment, creating co creating content and putting information on the internet as a means to business development, awareness, and creating demand and affinity for your product is the number one thing that your company needs to do. Aside from building a good product and delivering a great customer experience, that's the number one thing that you need to do. And so that's the exciting thing. And now that all of these tools, all of these resources, all of these things that B2B marketers didn't have 10 years ago to target exactly who they want to. We can target CISOs at companies that are 500 to 5,000 employees that are based in these different states. And we can go and target those exact people and go out and get them. Like these are the capabilities that didn't exist now that create the ability for marketers to really make an impact on the business and the go-to-market strategy. I think that's a fantastic place to leave it. Chris, it's always a pleasure to hear you speak. Um, congratulations on all the massive growth and the success at Refine Labs. It's fun to watch from the outside. Um, awesome. Thank you for joining. Yeah, really appreciate you having me on the show and uh, best of luck with the podcast. Thank you. You're at, you're at episode four, but um, we just did episode 263 and it's a, 
it's a fun journey, man. You got a lot of good stuff in front of you. So I'm excited for you to take the, to start to take this as a personal project and you'll talk to a ton of smart people. You learn a bunch of stuff. Your public speaking will get better. So I'm excited for you. I appreciate it.